0: Well, good morning, everyone, and a very happy Sabbath to you. So we're going to continue this morning with where we left off last night. And last night I gave an overview of the sanctuary message through the church's seals and trumpets. And the presentation this morning for the next few minutes is going to be dealing specifically with Revelation chapter 10... And we're going to focus in on verse 7 of Revelation chapter 10, dealing with the mystery of God. But in order for us to understand the, the total significance of Revelation chapter 10, we do need to understand the setting of Revelation chapter 10 historically, because without a proper understanding of the historical setting, we may miss. The Greater Significance. Now, I realize if you were here at my presentation last night, I, I went through the information pretty quickly, especially the first half of the book of Revelation. We'll slow down a little bit this morning as we hit some specific areas within the book of Revelation. When you look at the setting of Revelation chapter 10... Revelation chapter 9 concludes with the ending of the sixth trumpet, and Revelation chapter 10 also is before the sounding of the seventh trumpet, which is described in Revelation 11 verses 15 through 19, and you're going to hear more about that later in another presentation. So, Revelation chapter 10 is in the section of the book of Revelation describing the seven trumpets. And understanding the seven trumpets and the, the historical nature of the trumpets helps us then to understand the timing of Revelation chapter 10. Now you're going to hear about the timing of the trumpets in greater detail in further presentations, but just for some quick clarity, I'm going to mention that the first four trumpets from my belief of how things are set up in the book of Revelation. The trumpets are judgments, and I mentioned this last night. The first four trumpets are judgments on the Western Roman Empire, and I believe that that culminates especially with the fall of the Western Roman Empire in 476 AD. Then you have the fifth and the sixth trumpets, and there are time prophecies associated with these two trumpets, the fifth and the sixth trumpets, that are connected to what are called the first and the second woes. And we're going to see what inspiration says about the timing of these trumpets. Um, we believe historically that the fifth trumpet begins on July 27, 1299, when um, the Ottomans first attack, or yeah, when the Ottomans first attack the Eastern Roman Empire. But then we get into the sixth trumpet. And historically Adventists have taught that the Ottoman Empire fell on August 11, 1840. This is based on the time prophecy in Revelation chapter 9 verse 15 where it says, and the four angels were loosed which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. So that's one hour, one day, one month, one year. You do the math one year is 360 days, so that's 360 years. One month is 30 days, so that's another 30 years, so now you're up to 390 years. Then a day is a year, so now you're up to 391 years. And then an hour, if you do the math, is 15 days prophetically. So 391 years, 15 days, and that takes us to August 11, 1840. And when that comes to its conclusion, then we have Revelation 10. Let me just read to you, this is... Just briefly, to set the table for Revelation 10. Josiah Litch was the one who first came up with this prediction. He was a Millerite preacher. And Ellen White comments on this in Great Controversy 334. In the year 1840, another remarkable fulfillment of prophecy excited widespread interest. Two years before, Josiah Litch, one of the leading ministers preaching the Second Advent, published an exposition of Revelation 9, predicting the fall of the Ottoman Empire. According to his calculations, this power was to be overthrown in AD 1840, sometime in the month of August, and only a few days previous to its accomplishment, he wrote, allowing the first period 150 years, so that would be 1299 to 1449, to have been exactly fulfilled before Diacozzi's ascended the throne by permission of the Turks, and that the 391 years 15 Days commenced at the close of the first period, it will end on the 11th of August, 1840, when the Ottoman power in Constantinople may be expected to be broken, and this, I believe, will be found to be the case. Now, continuing, notice what Ellen White says At the very time specified, Turkey, through her ambassadors, accepted the protection of the allied powers of Europe and thus placed herself under the control of Christian nations. Notice what it says in bold the event exactly fulfilled the prediction. When it became known, multitudes were convinced of the correctness of the principles of prophetic interpretation adopted by Miller and his associates, and a wonderful impetus was given to the Advent movement, men of learning and position united with Miller both in preaching and in publishing his views, and from 1840 to 1844, the work rapidly extended. Now, there's recent books and elements even in the church that have discarded this prophecy, And, yeah, Ellen White calls it a remarkable fulfillment of prophecy and says that the event exactly fulfilled the prediction. Now, here's the interesting thing. Josiah Litch later himself gave up a belief in August 11, 1840. And so some modern Adventists have used that as justification to also give up a belief in this specific prophecy. But, But Josiah Litch also gave up his belief in the 2300 days in 1844. So we don't discard that, so we shouldn't discard August 11, 1840 either. Either. that sets the table then the time frame then for revelation chapter 10 and the mighty angel so you get to the end of revelation chapter 9 you have 1840 you come to revelation 11:14. 14 it says the second woe is past that's the sixth trumpet and behold the third woe or the seventh trumpet cometh quickly so there's this time period between 1840 to 1844 and revelation 10 describes that time period Revelation chapter 10 describes the time period between 1840 to 1844. So, historically, Revelation chapter 10 is going to describe the rise of the Second Advent movement. But let's look at verse 1. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. And we're going to look at what these passages say here. And here, John the Revelator says, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. Now, this is what I'll say about this. If you can identify the description or the the things that are used to describe this mighty angel, the association of the mighty angel, that he's clothed with a cloud, he has a rainbow on his head, his face shines like the sun, his feet are like pillars of fire. The verse 2 says he has a little book open in his hand. If you can connect the dots with those elements, the cloud, the rainbow, the feet like fire, the book in his hand, you will know exactly what this angel is setting out to do. Does that make sense? So the mighty angel is just not randomly described as being clothed with a cloud or having a rainbow upon his head or his face shining like the sun. That has a specific purpose. And so let's look at that. So the angel's coming down from heaven. This mighty angel is Jesus Christ. Now, In the interest of time, we're not going to be able to necessarily go through all of the verses, but when you look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, you see that Jesus, the Son of Man, has feet like fire that are burning in a furnace. And here this mighty angel has feet as pillars of fire. Furthermore, as we talked about last night... Jesus is the angel with a censer in his hand at the beginning of the seven trumpets. And here at the end of the seven trumpets, he's not just the angel who is the intercessor, he is the mighty angel. But he's still doing a work of intercession. So let's keep going here. He's clothed with a cloud. This mighty angel is clothed with a cloud. Now, when you think back in the Bible to the pre-incarnate Christ, we can go to Exodus chapter 13, verses 21 and 22, as well as Leviticus 16.2, and let's look at those verses. If you go to Exodus 13, 21 and 22, notice what it says. It says, and the Lord, this is Exodus 13, starting in verse 21, and the Lord, so this is the pre-incarnate Christ, went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. He took not away the pillar of the cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So the pre-incarnate Christ was clothed with a cloud, leading the children of Israel from Egypt to Canaan. And when you go to Leviticus 16.2, interestingly, it says... And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is is upon the ark, that he die not, for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. What part of the sanctuary is that? That's the most holy place. So when you have a mighty angel who was doing a work As an intercessor and angel at the beginning of the trumpets, now he's a mighty angel who's clothed with a cloud. You see the connection to Christ as he was in the Old Testament. And Christ in the Old Testament, clothed with a cloud, was above the most holy place. So, what does that tell you about the mighty angel? He's coming down from heaven to raise up a new movement. Just as he did in the Old Testament, he led the children of Israel from Egypt to Canaan. Now he's coming down around the time period of 1840 with the fall of the Ottoman Empire and the end of the sixth trumpet. Now he's coming down from heaven to raise up a new movement. And by being clothed with a cloud, he's announcing to the world that he's moving to the most holy place. And not only is he clothed with a cloud, a rainbow is upon his head. You're going to hear more about the rainbow later in some of these presentations. Genesis 9 talks about the rainbow being a covenant between God and Noah that God would not destroy the earth again with a flood. And Revelation chapter 4, verse 3 shows a rainbow is around the throne of God. So this rainbow is a symbol of a covenant that God plans to renew with his people from the throne in the most holy place. Because he's clothed with a cloud, so he's going to the most holy place. And a rainbow is above his head, so he's going to renew a covenant from the throne. And the throne is moving from the holy place to the most holy place. And the covenant... According to Hebrews 8:10 through 13 and chapter 10 verses 16 and 17 You can turn there. It says, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more." So God is renewing a covenant, and in that covenant, which is His law, there is a commandment that had been forgotten, the fourth commandment. So as, God, as Christ moves into the most holy place, He's moving to the most holy place as our high priest to renew a covenant with His people based on His law, which is a transcript of His character of love. And he's going to raise up a movement of people who will remember his law again and the fourth commandment. So we see very clearly what Revelation is describing here. And I didn't mention this in my presentation last night, but when you get to Revelation 11 and the sounding of the seventh trumpet, when you get to verse 19, it says, The temple of God was open in heaven, and there was seen in this temple the ark of his testament. That's the most holy place. So again, we see a movement of this mighty angel from the holy place to the most holy place. In this time period, the time period of Revelation 10 is 1840 to 1844. Now we also see that his face shone like the sun. Malachi chapter 4 verse 2 describes Jesus as the son of righteousness, S-U-N, son of righteousness. Righteousness. So Jesus is coming down from heaven to raise up a people who he will renew his covenant with from the most holy place. And his covenant is his law, which is a reminder of the Sabbath. And of course, Psalms 119.72 says that all thy commandments are righteousness. So Jesus is raising up a movement of people who will shine like the sun who will be a reflection or a demonstration of the righteousness of Christ. And you know, as Seventh-day Adventists, if anyone should shine like the sun and point people to Jesus, the Son of Righteousness, by allowing Him to be in our lives, we should be that people. Amen? So Jesus raised up a movement to lead them to the righteousness of Christ so that they will shine like the sun. So Revelation chapter 10, as we keep going here, we see this mighty angel, Jesus coming down from heaven. His feet are like pillars of fire. And again, the the pillar of cloud was a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. And now notice this in verse 2, and it says, "...he had in his hand a little book open." So here you have Jesus coming down from heaven, and based on his characteristics, he's clothed with a cloud. Well, he was clothed with a cloud above the most holy place in Leviticus 16.2, and that cloud was above the sanctuary, so there's sanctuary language, and a rainbow is above his head, which is connected to the throne of God, and it's connected to the covenant, which is the law of God and the Sabbath, and... His face shines like the sun, which is connected to the righteousness of Christ. And he has in his hand a little book open. Now, if you're simply following the context of Revelation chapter 10, you would have to say that the book that the mighty angel has open would be pointing to somewhere in Scripture that identifies the very things that the cloud, the rainbow, and the sun are describing. Does that make sense? So he's clothed with a cloud, a rainbow is above his head, his face shines like the sun, his feet are like pillars of fire, and he has in his hand a little book open, and that little book will tell you the very same thing, that the cloud, the rainbow, the sun, and the feet as pillars of fire are telling you as well. And what... The historical setting of Revelation 10 is telling us is that this is happening right after the end of the sixth trumpet. So it's the time period of 1840 to 1844. So the question then is, is there a book in the Old Testament that had been closed but now in this time period has come open that identifies the very thing that is happening in Revelation chapter 10? You know, 7th Adventists, we often will say, oh yeah, the little book opened, that's the book of Daniel, and that's the right answer. But what I'm trying to show you here is that you can very clearly show just by understanding the historical setting of Revelation 10, as well as the characteristics shown in verse 1 and 2, of why the little book that is being opened has to be the un, the, that which was sealed in the book of Daniel, but now is being unsealed. Does that make sense? The sealed portion of the book of Daniel is specifically the vision of the evenings and the mornings as described in Daniel chapter 8. It's the vision of the 2300 days, which points to 1844. So here's what I would say to this. If Jesus is opening the book of Daniel for us to understand... I want to understand the book of Daniel, and I also want to understand the book of Revelation. Amen? Because lots of people will say lots of things about what we need to know and understand in the Bible, and everything in the Bible is important. But if Jesus opens up the book of Daniel, I want to know the book of Daniel, and I want to know the book of Revelation. So, let's keep going here. So we, we understand Daniel eight fourteen, And this angel has his right foot upon the sea, his left foot on the earth. This is a worldwide message. The sea represents the populated part of the the world, which, as we heard last night, is the old world of Europe. And the earth represents the unpopulated part of the world at that time, which is the new world of the United States. It's where the second beast comes up out of the earth in Revelation 13. So this is a global worldwide message, and it's a movement that's a worldwide movement that Jesus is raising up. It's not for just places like Collegedale and Loma Linda. And I'm thankful for everyone that's here, but it's for the whole world. Now, we, uh, we'll we pass through verses 3 and 4 briefly, and, and in the Q&A last night, we were asked what the seven thunders represent. This is 7th seven, volume of the Bible and Commentary, page 971, where Ellen White says, the mighty angel who instructed John was no less a personage than Jesus Christ. So, From Ellen White we see that the mighty angel is Jesus Christ, but I showed you from the Bible as well that we can show that very clearly. Um, And I'll skip through those quotes. We're going to spend the rest of our time on Revelation chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. Because the title of this presentation is, The Mystery of God Finished. And this is what the purpose of the Second Advent movement is all about. Now, here's what th- this should get you excited as a Seventh day Adventist. Jesus himself saw that the Second Advent movement was so important to the end of the world that he himself came down from heaven to raise up this movement. And he identifies. How this movement is connected to the work that he is doing by the characteristics described in Revelation 10, the cloud. So that connects us to the sanctuary message. Specifically, the cloud rests above the most holy place. So then our eyes should be directed to Jesus in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. And the rainbow reminds us that he has made a covenant with us. Because he loves us. And so that covenant is a reminder of God's love to us. And of the commitment that we make to him. And... It's a reminder to us of the seventh day Sabbath. And we are reminded that He's at the throne of God and that He ever lives to make intercession for us and that He has identified the places in Scripture that we can find what He is doing on our behalf so that we can be connected to Him at a personal level. Because while it is all nice and good to understand the theory of 1844, if you don't have a living connection with your High priest who is ever living to make intercession for you, then it's not going to do you any good. But Jesus came down from heaven to raise up this movement for a very specific purpose, and we're going to see that purpose here in these next few verses. Verse 5 And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven. Now, we've, I, we've established and identified that this angel is Jesus. So now he's lifting up his hand to heaven. So he's about to say something. And if Jesus is about to say something, so far he hasn't really said anything other than we hear the lion roar and, and they're not written down. So far we've seen the angel. And we've seen that he has a cloud covering him or clothing him, and a rainbow is upon his head, and his face shines like the sun, and his feet are like pillars of fire. And he has a little book open, which is the unsealed portion of the book of Daniel. So we're seeing things, but now he's raising his hand up to heaven, and he's about to say something. I want to know what he's going to say, don't you? When Jesus says something, we want to listen. So he lifted up his hand to heaven, and verse 6 says, "...and swear by him that liveth forever and ever." So now he's making an oath. If you swear by something in the Bible, that means you're taking an oath. Now, when it says he swears by him who lives forever and ever... You might be confused to say, well, could the angel really be Jesus and Jesus is God? But then when you come to Hebrews chapter 6, it says, God, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself. So this is the covenant that God made with Abraham. And then it says, surely blessing I will bless thee and multiplying I will multiply thee. And you can see that. Let me give you the verse in Hebrews 6 just so that you know exactly which verse. I think it's 14, but I'll... um Yeah, it's 13 and 14. Hebrews 6, 13 and 14. Christ, or God, swears by himself. So here in in Revelation 10, Christ is swearing by God, or himself. He swears by him that liveth forever and ever. So now listen, if God swears by an oath, you better believe this is important. This isn't just some, and of course everything that God says is important. And we waste so many of his words. But when God swears by an oath, you better pay attention. And it's in the context of raising up a new movement that is going to renew the covenant that is bringing back to the world a knowledge of his law, including the fourth commandment. He swears by him that lives forever and ever, who created heaven, and the things that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. Okay, let's unpack this just a little bit. He's swearing by himself. He's swearing by an oath. And by the fact that he lives forever and ever. And he's swearing by the fact that he is the creator. Now, if you have a problem with creation, then you're going to have a problem being connected to the second Advent movement that Christ raised up because God is the creator. And when he raises up the second advent movement, he's identifying himself as the creator. Now, this is not novel to Revelation chapter 10. We see that God connects to the fact that he is the creator with the second advent movement more than once in the book of Revelation. The first time is Revelation chapter 3:14, where it says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things sayeth the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. That means God is creator. So, when God speaks to the Judgment Hour church, to the Laodicean church, he is identifying himself as the Creator. When you come to the three angels' messages, specifically to the first angel's message, it says, Worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Now, the scholars have connected that portion of the first angel's message to the fourth commandment of Exodus 28 through 11. The fourth commandment, the seventh-day Sabbath. And Revelation chapter 10 is basically doing the same thing. God as creator is a reminder that God made the earth in six days and rested the seventh day. Now, I'll just mention this in passing. But, you know, the Sabbath isn't just a day to take a day off from work. You realize that? The Sabbath and our experience with God on Sabbath is actually a reflection of our experience with God all week long. So let me say it to you this way. If you look forward to the Sabbath to come to an end so you can do the things that you really like, those things are more important to you than God. But if God is the most important thing to you in your life and you have a living connection with Him, you'll be sad to see that sun go down in the western sky. Ellen White makes a comment in Desire of Ages, page 283, in order for men to keep the Sabbath holy, they must themselves be holy. So another way to put it, if, if I'm a grumpy grouch all week, am I suddenly going to be a nice, happy person on Sabbath, really? Or another way to put it, if I, if I have an addiction problem, and I'm not connected to God because of that addiction problem, am I suddenly not going to be an addict on Sabbath? The point I'm trying to make is is that when we surrender our life to Jesus every day and live a sanctified life through His grace, when we come to the Sabbath, then the Sabbath has a special extra blessing for us. It's not just a day off from work. Now let's keep going here. So he swear by him that lives forever and ever who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. Now, is Christ swearing by an oath to say that the world is coming to an end right now? That's what the Millerites thought. Or is Christ saying something a little bit different? He has a little book open in his hand. What was unsealed? What was the unsealed portion of the book of Daniel, which is the 2300-day prophecy, which is the longest and last prophecy in the Bible? And that takes us to 1844. What Christ is saying here is that once this prophecy that has been unsealed, the 2300 days, now that it has been unsealed, and this time prophecy is coming to an end, there is no more prophetic time once the 2300 days comes to its conclusion. And Christ swears by an oath to say such. And yet some people today are trying to reinterpret time prophecies between 1844 and the second coming when Christ swore by an oath to say that there is no more time prophecy between 1844 and the second coming. So I'm going to go with Christ who swore by an oath. Now, verse 7. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel... When he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. Now in the last few minutes of this presentation, this is what we're going to focus on. Here's the setting of Revelation chapter 10. Christ the mighty angel has come down from heaven to raise up a new movement of people the second advent movement, from his work that will be done in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary where he will renew his covenant with his people based on his law. And his righteousness is designed to shine forth as the sun. And This movement is being raised up based on an understanding of an unsealed prophecy from the book of Daniel, the 2300-day prophecy, which the Millerites thought pointed to the coming of Jesus and the end of the world, but in reality was pointing to the movement of Christ from the holy place to the most holy place to develop a special group of people through whom the mystery of God would be finished. And this is where it gets very practical. What is the mystery of God. Now I have it up on the screen, but let's turn to Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to start probably in verse 25. Colossians chapter 1. Starting in verse 25 where Paul says, Where have I made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations but now is made manifest to his saints. Well, What is this ministry, m- mystery that has been made manifest to his saints? Verse 27, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is... Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not Christ outside of you, not Christ in place of you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then he goes on to say, Whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh where? In me mightily. Now, it's very interesting. If you keep studying the book of Colossians, go to the very next verse where it says, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at where? Laodicea. Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. So not only did the church at Colossae need this, but the Laodiceans needed the message of the mystery of God as well. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so Christ comes down from heaven as this mighty angel to raise up a new movement of people from the most holy place and he swears by an oath that there's this time prophecy that will get us to the time period of this Advent movement in 1844 and he says that when this Advent movement is raised up when the seventh angel begins to sound that's the seventh trumpet and you see the timing of the seventh trumpet in chapter 11 15 to 19 the most holy place is open in heaven so this is 1844 when the seventh angel begins to sound this is now the time period For the mystery of God to be finished, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Christ raises up a movement of people to have Christ in us, the hope of glory. So he's raising up a movement of people that will be like him. The mystery of God. It's a mystery that someone as sinful as me or you could become like Jesus. And yet, Jesus is saying, that is the work that I will be doing in the second Advent movement. Christ in you. Let's look at a couple of other verses. Galatians 2.20, a very familiar verse. How do we get Christ in us? I am crucified with Christ. This is surrender. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but who lives in me? Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I see Jesus. He loved me. He gave himself for me. He died on the cross. And I see that in me, without Christ, is that old man, that Romans chapter 6, verse 6 says, that that body of sin, the old man, needs to be destroyed. So I am crucified with Christ. And then Ephesians 3, 16 through 21 says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Notice verse 17, that Christ may dwell where? In your hearts by faith. So this is by faith. We are crucified with Christ by faith. By faith we believe that Christ can come into our hearts. That Christ may dwell in your heart by faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. And notice verse 20. And to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that you might be filled with what? All the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end notice. When Christ dwells in our hearts with faith, the promise is that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. That's the mystery of God. Christ is promising to pour out his spirit in all of its fullness. Now you go back to Colossians Two verse nine, it says, "For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, so by faith, all the fullness of the Godhead bodily can be lived out through our lives when we by faith, stay connected to Jesus. And the only way to have such an experience is to love God and to know Him on a daily basis, and to listen to His voice and to surrender to him at every step of the way every day. You know, the devil tries to make us think that we won't really be happy if we surrender to Jesus. And I find that a little bit amusing because how happy are you when you're grumpy and grouchy and angry and sad and bitter and frustrated and, and all of those things? How happy does that make us? I know it doesn't make me very happy, so why would you want to be angry grouchy bitter sad frustrated all of those things all the time holding grudges from what someone did you when you went to college 20 years ago or what someone did it to you at work 15 years ago and you carry around that with you the rest of your life but you're free that's not freedom friends Freedom comes from surrendering surrendering to Christ and having peace in your heart, love for your enemies, love for God, love for everyone, and having Christ live out His righteous life through you. Now, in the interest of time, I'll just mention John 8, 53 through 56 also talks about how we can have Christ in us, where Christ says, let me see here, and I think I put the wrong verse down here. But this says, He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood. Oh, I'm, yeah, so it's John 6. I put the wrong verses down there. So John 6. 53 through 56, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. Now Jesus says, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me. So as we get to know Jesus and as we eat his flesh and drink his blood, we dwell in him, he dwells in us, and it becomes our pleasure to do his will, to do the will of God. Now, let me read to you this statement. The, mystery, the message of Adventism and the mystery of God leads to the experience of the loud cry. And I read this statement last night, but I, I'm going to read it again because I think it's so important. The latter rain is to fall upon the people of God. A mighty angel is to come down from heaven, and the whole earth is to be lighted with his glory. Are we ready to take part in the glorious work of the third angel? Are our vessels ready to receive the heavenly dew? Have we defilement and sin in the heart? If so, let us cleanse the soul temple and prepare for the showers of the latter rain. The refreshing from the presence of the Lord will never come to hearts filled with impurity. May God help us to die to self, that Christ, the hope of glory, may be formed within." That's the mystery of God. May God help us to die to self that Christ, the hope of glory, may be formed within. And when Christ, the hope of glory, is formed within, the soul temple is cleansed, which leads to the cleansing of the sanctuary in heaven, which leads to the outpouring of the latter rain, which leads to the loud cry, which which leads to the mighty angel of Revelation 18, verse 1, coming down from heaven, having great power or great authority, And the earth is lightened or illuminated with its glory. Now, glory stands for character, and this is what has happened. When Seventh-day Adventists become serious about surrendering our lives to Jesus, Christ comes in. We will be cleansed of sin. We will receive the outpouring of the latter rain, and we will then, by the grace of God, be a demonstration of God's glory, the hope of glory, or His character to the world. And this angel comes down from heaven. Now, here's the amazing thing. Jesus was the mighty angel who came down from heaven in chapter 10 and raises up this movement. But he raises up a movement so that the mystery of God can be finished, so that he will have a world full of people who will be a demonstration of his glory or of his character. So Revelation 18 actually has more power because Christ has completed his work in the lives of his people. In Revelation chapter 10 verse 1, he's the mighty angel and he's starting the work, but he's one angel. In Revelation 18, you have an angel that lightens the earth with its glory because the earth is full of God's people who are a demonstration of the character of God the mystery of God, who have the righteousness of Christ not simply as a covering, but they have Christ in their hearts by faith. And one of the challenges of Adventism today is that a lot of times we think that we can be on our way to heaven with a covering without a heart change, and yet Christ is saying, I raised up this movement to change your heart. So that you would be like me, so that you will be kind, that you will be a loving and lovable Christian. You won't be one of those annoying Adventists who, I'm sorry, but I've been to places where one time I was getting some food at Potluck and someone stuck actually a piece of paper in my face that had a quote saying, this is the food you should and shouldn't be eating. We're not going to be annoying, obnoxious Christians. One time I was at a place where someone said, unless you grow out your beard, you're not going to get the latter rain. We're not going to be like that. That's nonsense. That's nonsense but we're going to be loving and lovable Christians. Yes, we will follow health reform and we'll be healthy and all of those things, but we will be doing it out of love for Jesus, not in a legalistic sense that makes everybody unhappy all around us. And that's what God raised up the second Advent movement for so that we would be a demonstration of Him. Now, Revelation reveals Jesus. Here's the amazing thing. The book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ and Christ reveals himself most fully in the book of Revelation through the second advent movement that he raises up when the mystery of God is finished, Christ in you the hope of glory so that the earth can be lightened with the glory of the character of God. That is the purpose of Adventism. The purpose of Adventism is not to be just as good as the world but with a Christian connection with that excellence and yes we want to be excellent people but the purpose of adventism is to go far beyond that yes we will be ethical and in all of the areas of our lives but we will be like jesus christ in you the hope of glory. When the mystery of God is finished, the second Advent movement becomes the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation 18.1 becomes a reality. And then Jesus will come back. Because when the loud of rain is poured out, the loud cry is given. When the loud cry is given, that leads to the close of probation. And once, the, once probation closes, Jesus comes back and we will get off this planet. Amen? Yeah. Let's just close with a brief word of prayer. Father, We just pray that we will surrender to you and that we will allow Jesus to come into our hearts, that we will be loving and lovable Christians, that we will see in the people of this world, people that you have died for. May we not have an attitude of, well, we're better than you because we're Seventh-day Adventists. May we realize that we're lukewarm and that we make you want to vomit because we're so content in complacency. May we be loving, lovable, seek those who need your help and your grace, and may we prepare ourselves for your soon coming, I pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.